Ephesians 4, as we've done every week, we're going to read these first six verses. By the end of all of this, we ought to have this whole little passage memorized, right? This will be from the NIV. I did, by the way, remember to uh, do the version app. So if you're somebody who likes to follow and take notes in that, that's available. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So this is this is Paul's key passage in all of this, that we are called, that we have been saved for a purpose. And he's going to go in, the, in later verses. You can make this your homework. Uh, through these weeks, go and read what comes right after this. And he will talk about how he shapes us and and some of the gifts he's given people to help us to grow in that calling. But first, before you can get into, okay, so what do I need to do? And what does ministry look like? And what does my calling look like in those kind of steps? First, we actually have to deal with what's on the inside, because ultimately all ministry, true ministry has to come from the heart. That's why we're called to serve one another from the heart. You can do the actions of service and you can do actions of ministry and you can do those things without your heart in it. It will never bear the fruit God intends, not in you and not in those you serve. It has to start from here. It has to be to his glory. It has to be moving from his spirit and it has to be a true heartfelt thing. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be days where you're going to do the right thing because it's the right thing, even though you don't feel like it. I would I would contend that it takes love from the heart to do what you don't want to do on the days you don't want to do it. That's not empty service. People will tell you, well, you just shouldn't do it till you feel like it. Those people are wrong. You do what's right. You do what's God honoring, regardless of whether or not you feel like it, because that is love. People will tell you love is only when you feel the ushy-gushy feelings. And that is not true. Anybody who's married knows that. And don't take that the wrong way. Okay? Don't take that the wrong way. Anybody who's married and has been married for a long period of time will tell you that is the secret to success in a loving marriage. You love even on the days when it's hard. You forgive on the days, forgiveness is always hard. You forgive on the days when it's hard. You serve on the days that it's hard because you know that you made a commitment in love to do what's good and right regardless. And what you find is that sometimes the feeling leads and sometimes the feeling follows. Okay? Sometimes you love first and then you feel. What Satan would have you believe is that you only love when you feel like it. And that's not true. And that's that's just kind of a bonus lesson. You, you're up there going, I don't see that on that slide. No, you're absolutely right. That's that's a bonus. Let's look right here at what is there. Uh, all real growth. I kind of echoed this already, but all real growth and all true victories begin with a really good look in the mirror. Okay, James talks about this. He says, do not merely listen to the word. That's like when you go and you look, you look at a mirror, he says, 
and you see yourself, you see where you need to grow, you see where you need to change, you see where God is making progress in your life. You see where the Spirit has already caused growth. And he says, you see this in the mirror, you see that? And then what do you do? He says, if all you do is hear the word, but you don't do it, it's like you looked in the mirror and you said, oh, I really should change that. And then you walked away. Clearly, some of us did that this morning, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. he's looking at me when he nodded. That's what I noticed. Um, but he, yeah, me too. So at 48, I stopped looking. Why do I need a mirror? There's no more hair to comb. What am I worried about? So and you're like, well, maybe you should take one more look. But you, he says, when you listen to the word and you don't do what it says, it's as if you look in the mirror and you knew where you need to grow, but you didn't ever do it. And so yet you still expect the same kind of growth and victories. And why do we do that? You didn't do what he told you to do. You didn't grow where he told you to grow. You didn't improve or push where you need to improve or push. And yet you wanted God to bless you as if you did. That didn't make any sense, does it? It does not. That would be like a church that says, Lord, we want to grow. But we don't evangelize. We don't pray. and We don't encourage one another. Well, then how would you grow? Is there growth without going to the Lord and asking him to bless that? No, not real growth. Is there growth in yourself? The same thing. If you're never with the Lord, if you're not in his word, and if you're not putting it into practice, well, how could there be? That's like the way a lot of us try to grow plants. Well, I put it in a pot and I looked at it three months ago. Where are my tomatoes? Does that work? No, there's watering, there's... There might be fertilizing. There's all kinds of things you might have to do. Here lately, I, I thought I was going to have to worry about the plants going dry. I've been having to worry about the rain keeps putting bu- water back into my buckets that were supposed to. It's a hydroponic thing. They were supposed to go down a little bit. They wouldn't go down. I kept going out there and they were getting diluted. So I keep having to add nutrients back in. If I don't pay attention, you know what's going to happen? They're going to die. Well, now I could say, well, the Lord gave me some water. What do I need to keep going back out there for to check the water level? Because it's Texas and it's June. Soon I'll have the opposite problem. By soon, I mean like in 30 minutes. I'll have the opposite problem. And I'll need to add water back in. It's maintenance, right? Isn't the life of a disciple maintenance? Yeah, same thing. I'm going to go back to the bonus lesson on marriage. Isn't marriage about maintenance? Yes, you have a house. You, and it's the weirdest thing. This is one of the weirdest things about houses. If nobody lives in a house, what happens? It falls apart. That makes no sense. It makes no sense. A house that's not lived in, nobody's wearing it out. It ought to, that thing ought to be pristine and solid. And none of it works that way. Abandoned homes are not pristine and solid. They're destroyed. Abandon the maintenance on your soul. Same thing. Abandon the maintenance on your marriage. Same thing. Abandon the maintenance on raising your kids in the faith. Same thing. It's all the same. We were not meant to be idle. We were meant to do our maintenance and, and to keep things up. And part of that is you, you, you look in the mirror, you know. Now, you don't want to overly obsess looking in the mirror because then you become like Joan Rivers and you do too much maintenance, right? It's like Highway 84, where half of the potholes are because they put more pavement over something that was okay, you know, and they just keep doing it over and over and over again, and it just makes a mess. That happens. Hey, okay, so don't do that. 
But look in the Word of God and look at your relationship with God and do what David does in Psalm 139 where he goes to the Lord and says, God, you tell me. Now, you've got to be kind of brave by faith to do that. But you need to do it. God, you tell me. What needs to change? Where do I need to grow? What needs to be gotten rid of? What needs to be brought into my life? He puts it this way, as you probably already read. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me. By the way, he already does. He knows your heart. But search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. I'm not going to ask you to raise hands because anxious people get nervous when preachers say raise your hand. Okay? So I'm not going to ask you to do it. But how many people came this morning with anxious thoughts? Already you've been doing it. And look here at what the Lord or what David asked the Lord to do. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. Is there anything, God, that I am offending you with? Do I say things, do things, not do things that you're sitting there going, well, I never only God has several times over people just like us. But is there a way in which we offend God with the way that we're living, or the way that we're not living? David says, I want you to find it, God. Root all of that out. Weed control. Get it out of there, Lord. Find any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I would encourage you, read that whole psalm. It's a it's 20 some odd verses, but it's a really beautiful poem. But more than that, if you want to know how much God already knows you, how well he knows you, look at what David says in Psalm 139. Paul, getting back to verse uh, two here, Paul says, but be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. So let's look at his little list. This is what a grace shaped heart is going to look at. You look in the mirror, you say, God, where do I need to change? Well, Paul says pretty much all of us had these four things we need to work on. I think that's why he lists them. These four things I think everybody in Ephesus needs to work on and just substitute early for Ephesus and all of us. We all need to work on them, I'm sure. So the first is humility. Now I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago because Scripture just keeps bringing it back up. Last time it was Peter, now it's Paul. And I mentioned then that humility is our secret weapon. The world doesn't trade in humility. Okay, that's not the way it works. The world trades in pride and arrogance and self-centeredness. So if people who are humble, selfless, and focused on things more important and bigger than themselves, rock people's boats. The good thing is they can rock their boats for an eternity. They can make them better for eternity, and that shouldn't be they. Okay, we're going to talk about, you know, choosing your pronouns. Well, let's choose that to make it instead of they. Make that into we, us, and our. That is our secret weapon. The humility that we show can change the world. And it has to be genuine. That's Psalm 139 again. God, you're going to have to work on us. Show us where we're not. That's dangerous. It's almost like praying for patience, which we'll get to here in a second. Praying for humility. Because the only way to gain humility is to be humbled. And let's face it, when we've already been stuck in pride so long, praying for humility is tough. Having God answer it is tougher. But the character that's developed in the end is far more valuable than anything we understand. 
Okay, God can use us in ways we don't even understand until we let him do that. I love this passage from that Paul writes in Philippians when he's writing this other church, and he says it this way, do nothing. And this is a great definition of humility. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. If you're not sure where to start, do that. Okay, I just will not be selfish this week. Nothing will be about what I can get. Nothing will be about what I can attain. Nothing will be about my promotion. Nothing will be about my attention. It will be about others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking, sorry, I, my, I looked with the wrong eyeball, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Value. I want to come back to that one here in just a second, but kind of put a bookmark there next to valuing others above yourselves, because that's that's an action we take. It's not just about knowing someone's value. We'll come back to that. His second thing he says is gentleness. Now, we don't. I don't think we get this, Okay, we read about gentleness, and I think we have the wrong definitions in our head compared to what is in Scripture when we hear about gentleness. And so we think it's we think of gentleness because we've seen too many Charmin commercials as softness. Okay, don't squeeze the Charmin. Well, don't squeeze your other disciples either. But gentleness is not about being a doormat. I think that's how humility and gentleness are often portrayed. I know that's what the world thinks because that's what Satan wants us to think so that we will avoid them. Instead, gentleness is I'm just going to put it this way. Gentleness is just not being a jerk. Okay, that's all it has to be. If you want a really simple definition, it is that. And by that, I came to that thinking about Jesus. Okay, you think about what Jesus is and and the rights he would have to be prideful and a big shot. And he doesn't take any of those. And said he is humble and gentle and people will make fun of the gentle Jesus. Oh, Jesus, gentle, mild and and meek, and they think meek equals weak. And it's all a lie of Satan. Wouldn't wouldn't it make sense that someone who is so prideful, he thinks he's better than God, would be afraid of the idea of humility and meekness? Gentleness is something else. Like meekness, meekness, meekness actually means power under control, knowing your strength, dealing with people considerately, carefully, as needed. You may be strong as Samson, but you don't break every glass you hold in your hand. Why? Because you've learned to use your strength carefully and appropriately. That's what meekness is, and that's really what gentleness is. Those kind of are interchangeable. The words I have listed there are all things that I pulled from different Bible dictionaries and ways of defining what gentleness is, and I don't think this is what we think of most of the time. So put these all together and hear this. This is Jesus. Humble, kind, courteous. Do you think about courteous when Paul says, I want you to be humble and gentle? Courteous. Put your basket up. Consider it. Self-controlled. Another way of putting this is look beyond the end of your own nose. How do your actions affect the people around you? And are those actions good for them or harmful to them? This is what it means 
to be humble and gentle. And again, if, if you just want to see what that looks like in the flesh, spend more time with Jesus. Go to the Gospels, pick a Gospel, any Gospel, and just spend time looking at how Jesus dealt with things. Was Jesus weak? Never. Was Jesus meek? Always. So then there must not be the same thing. No, he's courageous. He's bold. He's firm. He stands up for people against the mob. He, he looks a group of people one time. They're about to throw him off a cliff. And he looks them in the eyes. And he doesn't call down fire. We would have called down fire, right? This would have been a great time to call down fire. A little circle right around you. Leave a big smoking hole like a donut. That's what we would have done. Not Jesus. It says that he looks at them and he just walks right out through them, leaving them stand there going. I thought we were throwing him off the cliff. That's Jesus power under control. But not a weak and not a jerk. Those are the two unhealthy extremes. Right. And then there's Jesus, a third way that is far better every single time. The third thing that Paul says is, I want you to be patient. I, I don't like this one any better than you do. I ain't got time for it. But we got to be patient. Ain't nobody got time for that. Yes, we do. We need to be patient. And I, 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 because this is a need for me, I focused on this for a while. So you're probably familiar with this. This has been around since the 90s, this picture at the very least. Uh, Stephen Covey includes it in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, to get us to, to really kind of look at how we see the world. Some of you see one thing and some of you see another. I don't know who sees what. Again, for the anxious people, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. But some of you will see an older lady. Looks like she might be from Eastern Europe in the 1800s. She's got a shawl on and a fur and a big nose and a strong chin. Right? Some of you are like, James, I don't know what you're talking about. No, because you're sitting there going, but I see a really beautiful woman looking away from the artist with long eyelashes and a hat. Do you not? No, see, you don't see that, do you? See, my, me, I got those, I have a near contact and a far contact. I can see one, then I see the other, and then one, and the other. it's great. But there's, they're both up there. Y'all, some of you might be seeing a parrot on skis. I have no idea. But there's always somebody in the room. Anyway, we're not going to go into what that one means. But you, we see things differently, and patience it kind of hit me this week. Patience is so much about perception. Isn't it? Because there are people that we can be really patient with. It's no problem. And there are people for whom we have zero patience. And the difference may not be in those people. Sometimes the difference. It's in here. In our perception of that person, the assumptions we've made about them, the things that experiences maybe we've had in the past that have shaped our perceptions of that person rightly or wrongly, accurately or inaccurately. And so then we end up with a different gauge of patience, depending on the person or depending on the circumstance. But we don't have to leave our perceptions as they are. One of the great freedoms we have in Christ is we can look at that and say, but what if my perception is wrong? What if God sees it better than I do? The God who still loves this person? The God who is still patient with this person? The God who still values this person? Our perceptions are largely shaped, not only shaped, but largely shaped 
by uh, these things positively or negatively. Now, I think we look at these words and they all have a positive connotation immediately, right? For the most part, or maybe neutral for the first couple. But there's worth, value, perspective, and grace. So worth, this is the intrinsic worth of something. Now, our perception of worth changes, doesn't it? Uh, the other day, I was looking uh, at, what was I looking at? It was eBay, I think. And on there was this toy that I had when I was a kid. And I don't know if any of you had, I didn't put a picture of it up here or anything, but it was this little race car thing. This is pre-Nintendo, pre-Atari, pre-Atari, that's how ancient I am. All I remember when Atari was new. I remember when Sears sold a knockoff Atari. Sears, think about that for a second. And this little toy was a physical, it, it had this ribbon inside, a clear ribbon that looked like a road. And it had little obstacles like other cars and things like that on it. Your little car stayed in the same place, except it could go right and left with a steering wheel. And it would get faster and faster as it got harder. And uh, I used to love that thing. If you accidentally hit a, hit a car, well, then there would be this little red little LED light that would flash down in the bottom that would, uh, that would show a little crash scene. And then your race was over. Of course, you were the one keeping score. You had to turn this little knob to say, I had a wreck. You know, that sort of thing it was all very manual and all. And I saw this. I don't know what my parents paid for this in the 1970s, but I, it could not possibly have been all that much. However, I saw some of those things worth $80. They weren't $80 when they were new. Not too long ago, I saw a Pinto that went for $25,000. Ah, see what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Why would a Pinto go for $25,000? I saw a Yugo go for $18,000. A Yugo. That's why the Pinto went for twenty-five. dollars <laughs> It's all relative. What is that? It's lunacy is what it is, but it's because somebody somewhere has determined that it is worth that. Now, is that worth real or not? In the end, it's still a Pinto and it's still a Yugo. That's its true worth and i would say neither of those two things are worth anywhere near that however yeah praise the lord he loves pintos and yugos right some of us we're that's what we are and you know what the value come becomes a completely different thing because to the person who bid twenty five thousand dollars it has that incredible value but we can't see it we can't perceive it. We look at that and go, I think that's crazy. We do the same thing with people. We wouldn't have patience with a broken pinto. We said it never was worth them very much. God sees people through his own standards of worth. Patience is when we finally understand that everyone has an intrinsic, incredible worth to God, and then we change our perception of their value accordingly. And we start to actively value them, Paul says in Philippians, above ourselves. If we sat down and did, it a, did a, an evaluation, we would all be able to find somebody that we think is worth less to God than we are. That's part of our fallenness part of our pride and our ego. Growing in grace is saying, God, I don't see what you see, 
but I trust your eyes more than mine. And then you gain patience. Patience is when we start to let God shape our value and our understanding of their worth. It's when we start to to let God just completely change our perspective. And it's all rooted in that last one. If God can love and forgive me, he must see something in me I don't see. And if God can forgive and love them, he must see something I don't see. And our prayer becomes not God help me put up with this person. Our prayer becomes God help me see this person as you see them. And then everything changes. And patience starts to grow in our heart toward that person. This is what hit me studying for this. Patience is grace in real time. We think about grace and forgiveness always being after the fact and after the hurt. Patience is loving a person and showing them grace and forgiveness even while even before they repent, even before they see what needs to change, even before they understand that God loves them and he can fix them and help them and and help them grow. Patience is grace in real time. And we, we depend on that with God all the time, don't we? We want it for ourselves. We need to extend it to others. Finally, he comes to this last one, which is kind of the summary of all of those, isn't it? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient bearing with one another in love. It's the, impl- it's the implementation of all these others. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Okay, God, if you can help me to grow in these, then I'll be able to do this one. Be able to put up with whatever. Why? Because now, God, I see them the way you see them. Now, God, I love them the way that you love them. Now, God, I forgive them as you've forgiven me. You say, all right. And then real growth happens. That's when the church really takes off. It's when your family really takes off, your marriage really takes off, when you really take off. Because then your focus is no longer obsessed with self. It's focused on how can we help each other grow? How can we help each other find grace? How can we love the Lord together? Let's stand and sing together.